0: up on today's show, a deal has been reached with the province and Athabasca University. There's been a lot of back and forth on that one. We'll speak with the Minister of Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nicolaitis. Leader of the federal NDP party, Jugmeet Singh will join us. We talk about a lot of things including the Alberta Sovereignty Act, an unprecedented protest taking over in China. An important update on a story that we've covered pretty extensively uh, here on this show. A deal has been reached between the province and Athabasca University. And as you know, there's been a lot of back and forth on this one going back several months now. It got, it got pretty tense at times. I mean, there was talk of uh, funding being pulled unless certain agreements were made. Um yeah, it got pretty acrimonious at times, but it looks like all that's in the past now and we are moving forward. So let's find out exactly what was agreed to. We're going to chat with Demetrios Nicolaitis, who is the Minister of Advanced Education. Uh, Minister, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so like I say, we've sort of followed this as it's gone along. Where did we end up? What are the details of the new deal, the agreement that was reached on Wednesday?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we had a, a deal reached yesterday afternoon or into the early evening. So... In particular, uh, the uh, investment management agreement uh, sees 44% of the institution's executive team be based in Athabasca um, within three years. Uh, It also sees the university grow the number of individuals who are employed locally from the current level of 252 to 277, again, within uh, three years. Uh, it also provides a new mandate statement for the university that also emphasizes the importance, uh, the important role the institution plays in uh, bringing jobs and creating jobs uh, in the local community. So those are the uh, the three critical pieces
0: uh, within the investment management agreement. Uh, just some of those numbers, I mean, it's a pretty uh, substantial drop from where we heard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I know at one point um, the demand was you wanted 500 uh, employees, you know, uh, university employees to be actually living in Athabasca. So we've gone from 500 down to 277. Why, why did you back so far off that target? Well, we, we
1: never had a, a firm target. You know, you go back to March at the very beginning, um, I had provided direction to the university, which was very simply to have their executive and administrative operations be based in the town. Um, I actually didn't at that time include any timelines or, or numbers uh, because I thought it was best to leave those details up to the university. And I asked for the university to build me a plan that would get there. Um, unfortunately, the university didn't provide that, so we were compelled to to put some numbers down. Um, but uh, I've never been firm that there has to be an X number of individuals in the town. Uh, I've always tried to provide deference to the university and, uh, and, and give me numbers that they thought would, would be uh, achievable and appropriate. Um, even until yesterday, uh, we never had that, and we were always compelled to put forward suggestions and numbers uh, ourselves. And so uh, we did that in Early November, I provided a revised investment management agreement to the university with the targets that I just outlined, and that was unanimously agreed upon by the board.
0: Um, as we've talked about this, you've made it clear, and I'm just wondering... It wasn't necessarily about the targets. I mean, there, there were targets that were given and the numbers that were provided and things like that, but there was an understanding, I think, that needed to be reached because to me, when this all started, it seemed like uh, you and the president of Athabasca University were on completely different pages as to what that school was about. And I think that's more important for, you know, running that facility into the future. Um, has that been reached where we know there's competing interests of being a job center and being a post secondary institution. Um, It worked for a long time, and then it seemed to be fraying a little bit. Has that been healed? Uh, I I think it has, and
1: and I don't know that uh, the president and I uh, have that different of opinions, to be quite honest, when it comes um, to those pieces. We both agree that Athabasca University is an incredibly successful online institution and should continue to deliver and reach learners in that capacity and grow uh, even more and establish itself as a, the premier online university of Canada. Yeah. We both agree, um, and, uh, and and I believe the president agrees as well that uh, the institution should contribute to local uh, job development. I won't speak on his behalf, of course, but, uh, but this is very important uh, to me and to the government of Alberta because... Athabasca University is where it is for a very specific reason. As an online and distance university, of course, it could be anywhere. It could operate anywhere. Mm -hmm. But the government in 1984 moved the university to the town that shares its name, moved it to Athabasca, the town of Athabasca. And that was for a very particular purpose. That was to help bring a degree of jobs to the community. So... Uh, we, we I think
0: it's very important that we not lose sight of that original vision. When it comes to the um, the jobs, 277 is uh, the number that's been agreed to within three years. Does it matter what kind of job that is? As you've said, uh, you know, you wanted at least part of the executive. Does it have to be faculty? Can it be janitorial? Does it matter what those jobs are?
1: For that specific metric, and it doesn't. Uh, I think it's best left up to the university, uh, of course, who understands their employment needs and uh, their uh, HR dynamics best. Um, and again, I don't think it's the best place for a government to get involved at that level of, of detail. Uh, I think it's important for us to provide uh, direction and to provide expectation with respect to outcomes, which we've done here. So again, we're, there's 252 employees of the institution that Uh, work locally in Athabasca, and we're asking the university to grow that. Um, What positions, uh, I think is best to to be left entirely up to the university to articulate that.
0: So at this point, what we know is uh, the numbers have been agreed to in terms of how many, and and the, the grant from the province, the funding, all that's secure now, that's all been put to rest, right? Yeah, 100%. And, um, of course, I imagine that the, the board and the
1: administrative team will now uh, continue to work on implementation strategies and um, to, to achieve those targets. And I remain at their disposal um, and am willing to provide any support that's necessary to help ensure that they're able to attain those targets. This, we don't want to set anybody up for failure. We want to work together together to achieve this uh, target and if there's a way that I can help uh, I'd, I'd be very happy
0: to. Uh, last week in speaking with uh, you and with the president there was this uh, talk about a sort of something that he's developing in terms of a, a research facility that he thinks may be really beneficial to the school and also really help them reach some of these um, employment numbers and, and figures that are required because it would be a research facility for northern Alberta by people working there and researching that area. Has that gone any farther you said at the time you were interested in hearing more about it. Have you had any conversations? And does that um, open a door here where maybe that could be something that gets worked into the plan?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's possible. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always open to ideas. I think first and foremost, as I expressed last time I was on that. Um, Uh, I I wasn't too keen on getting too far down in those conversations until we had an investment management agreement signed and uh, commitment from the institution to work on uh, bringing more jobs to the community. Uh, You know, I'm happy to explore that in more detail if the administration thinks that that is um, the right strategy to pursue um, and and happy to have those those
0: continued conversations uh, as as we head forward. Um, Minister, I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. All the best to you. You too. That's Dimitrios Nikolaitis, who is the Minister of Advanced Education. Um, you know, all in all, I think this is a pretty um, reasonable way of doing things. I mean, Athabasca University, we've learned a lot about it over the past few months for those of us who haven't been really connected to it over the years. It was created. And not only to be um, a remote—I mean, this was before online. It was all done through correspondence um, uh, for remote learning, right? And and it's it's done exceptionally well. The school has about forty thousand uh, students from all around the world. It's big. It it, it is a massive, massive post-secondary education. And it's been very successful in providing that education. But when it was created, that was only half of its mandate. The other half was we wanted to be a job creator. We wanted to be an economic driver for wherever it ends up in the province of Alberta. And communities actually bid on where it would end up. And Athabasca won. So that's why the school is the Athabasca University. And over the years, and especially through COVID, the number of employees of Athabasca University who actually lived in Athabasca continued to dwindle. At one point it was 500, not all that long ago. And then uh, that was in 2014, but it slowly dwindled down to about, at last report, about 225, I think, 250, sorry, 252, not 225. And the government came in and said, Hey, we'd like to get this back up to 500. School said, can't do it. Try and get this up to 500. The kind of education that we're offering is going to completely suffer. We can't recruit the best and the brightest in terms of faculty uh, to come and teach at Athabasca if they have to live here, but we can get them to do online teaching and all the rest of that stuff. And that's what we've been doing. And um, that went contrary to the other half of the mandate. So now they've come to an agreement where they need to have 277, not 500. Uh, living in the community and actually working for the university. That should be attainable. That sounds perfectly reasonable. The $3.5 million monthly grant, that seems to be put to rest. That will continue to come, so that's been handled. And if you were with us last week or the week before, I can't remember exactly when it was, and speaking with the university president, he's come up with an alternative plan that he thinks just might help everybody here. And what he's talking about doing is creating a research facility as part of Athabasca University, where it would be an an educational thing, um, but you would have researchers coming to take their educational training and to do their research at Athabasca University, researching the kind of things that are taking place in north-central Alberta, right? So you'd have all of these people actually living and working in Athabasca. So you'd have the employment driver, and at the same time, it would be a world-class research institute researching issues that are, you know, dealt with in that part of the world, which is parallel in other parts of the world. So seem to make sense, Seem to be, okay, we're, we're working on something here. So nonetheless, the Athabasca University situation seems to have been put to rest, at least for now. Right, and now that we're joined by the leader of the federal NDP party, Jagmeet Singh is here with us. Uh, Mr. Singh, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Of course, the news that's dominating headlines here in Alberta, as you no doubt are well aware, you raised it in the House of Commons, I'm asking the Prime Minister what he's doing, well, not in the House of Commons, but you know what I mean, asking the Prime Minister what he's doing to stop the Premier of Alberta from uh, destroying public health care with the sovereign, I mean, all these things around the Sovereignty Act. First of all, to start, walk me through it. What is your concern about the Sovereignty Act that was introduced in the Alberta Legislature on Tuesday?
2: A couple of major concerns. One, it doesn't respond to what people are really worried about. Like when I speak to people from Alberta, they're telling me they're worried about cost of living, uh, cost of groceries going up. They're worried about their health care system not being there for them, their kids not being able to go into an emergency room. They're worried about those, those things. And the Sovereignty Act does nothing to actually fix any of those concerns. And instead, what it does is it's undemocratic. It uh, takes away... The transparency of decisions being made in the legislature openly for the public to see and allows laws to be made in back rooms secretly with cabinet only uh, people are referred to it kind of as the king henry laws uh, giving powers uh, almost unfettered to the premier and to the cabinet but without the light of day for albertans to see what's going on and to weigh in on decisions being made and to have an opinion so it's undemocratic and it takes away from Albertans' right to see what's going on. And it doesn't respond to the needs of Canadians, uh, needs of Albertans, people who are worried about uh, their health care, their cost of living.
0: Um, so what would you have the Prime Minister do? Do you think it would be appropriate for him to what, disallow this, um, step in? What, what would you do as Prime Minister if it was you know, in your court?
2: As Prime Minister, what I, and when I'm Prime Minister, what I'll do is, is, is sit down with premiers to solve problems. Now, the, the premiers uh, have raised concerns about health care uh, some premiers are not interested in, in fixing health care in the case of Daniel Smith but my job would be to and my job is to find ways to solve problems so how do we get people on side to solve the the nursing and health care worker and doctor shortage that's something I think everyone can agree with is a problem and it sounds like a solution that would require all provinces and territories and the federal government working together. It might include changes to immigration. It might include better recognition sure. of internationally trained people. But let's look for solutions. And as, as uh, Prime Minister, my, my job would be to look for solutions to the problems that people are dealing with.
0: Yeah, but I'm, I'm asking specifically, uh, you're saying the Prime Minister needs to do something in, in, in the face of this Sovereignty Act. So specifically, what would you do if regarding the Sovereignty Act? What would you have him do? Well, what I've raised to the Prime Minister is to, to address the Sovereignty
2: Act in terms of health care. And that was the, the context of the question. Uh, what is the Prime Minister going to do to prevent Daniel Smith from tearing apart our public health care system, which is what Albertans are worried about? So I'd say use the tools that we have uh, at the federal level to protect our health care system. Make sure we're using the Canada Health Act to protect Albertans. Make sure Albertans who are worried about getting their kids the care they need get the help they need and that the federal government steps up and does what it can, uh, whether that's using the law, the Health Canada Health Act, to properly fund and resource health care services, whether that means standing up to uh, privatization, where people can't get the care they need unless they've got lots of money, or uh, that there's different quality of care for someone who is a hardworking person but doesn't have lots of money left over in the bank account. We want to make sure healthcare is there for everybody, and yeah. that's something that the federal government has a role to play and uh, with, with Daniel Smith and the sovereignty act sounds like she's trying to threaten it. She's, she's raised concerns around, she's raised ideas around fundraising for your own operations. She said that people should have to pay to go to the hospital. I mean, these are ideas that are completely unacceptable.
0: I, 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 a lot of people would agree with you, but you're comp- conflating two completely separate issues. She, uh, she, I followed this quite closely. As far as I know, she has never referenced the Sovereignty Act to health care in any way. There's never been discussion about it being used in terms of the Canada Health Act or federal legislation around health care. Uh, those are two completely separate arguments that I think you're mixing into a big ball of fear. Well, the... The fact that she's
2: challenged, uh, some of the basic ideas around healthcare and said that things like people should have to fundraise, uh, to, to pay for their own operations sounds pretty ludicrous. This is something that she said. In fact, sure. that she's saying that people should pay to get access to, to hospitals. Uh, and the fact that one of the protections that Albertans have is that there are certain principles that all the provinces agreed upon in, in at the federal level. the federal law. We agreed that our healthcare system should be public. It should be universal. It should be accessible for everybody. It should be transferable if you go from one province to another. These are principles that everyone already agreed upon. And Mm. the fact that she's putting in place uh, these serious concerns around her health care and then putting forward this undemocratic act that could challenge basic ideas around our our federal system, around things like things that Albertans and all Canadians agree with, like universal health care, I think it's pretty easy to put two and two together. She's challenging a public accessible health care, putting forward an undemocratic sovereignty act, and I think it's fair for Albertans to be worried about and to use that to attack some of the principles that we've all agreed upon, that we should have a public universal health care system.
0: Um, perhaps down the road that may be something that we can talk about certainly. Um, this act, uh, as you know, whether you agree with it or not, and a lot of people do, a lot of people don't, it was brought in because many, not all to be sure, But many Albertans have a real disdain for the Liberal government and for the Prime Minister and and some of the things that they've done. But it doesn't stop there. Um, You probably know it's referred to in Alberta as the Trudeau-Singh Alliance. You wear everything that this Prime Minister does because you're actually the only person that has power to stop it. You're very critical of the prime minister as as recently as today, talking about he needs to step in. You're very critical about he doesn't have the courage to stand up to corporations that you feel Mm -hmm. are are gouging and profiteering. You are the one person in the country that can do something about it. You prop up that government. What would it take for you to say, you know what, I've seen enough? Well, here's the thing.
2: We have the power to get things done for people, uh, and we're getting things done today, December 1st. Kids under 12, uh, nearly half a million kids in this country are getting free dental care that their parents can apply for, $1,300 per child because of us. Uh, Today, federally regulated workers get 10 paid paid sick days uh, for the first time in our country. Uh, That's now in law. In a couple more days, uh, nearly 2 million people across our country are going to get help for their rent. And we've uh, already sent uh, nearly $500 out to 12 million people in this country through GST rebate. Uh, That's something that we did. The Conservatives can't point to a single thing that they've been able to do to get people any real concrete help. And we forced the government to do this. This wasn't easy. We had to fight with Trudeau. We had to fight with the Liberals to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So we're using our power to get help done for people. But it's like an agreement at a workplace. Just because the workers have an agreement with the employer doesn't mean they like everything the employer does. I have problems with Trudeau all the time. I've raised those concerns. I feel like he's not doing enough to deal with the cost of living and taking on corporate greed. He's letting the, the approach be that workers have to bear the burden of any crisis, that with the inflation and the interest rates going up, it's only making things harder for workers. He's not doing enough to fix that. But I'm actually looking for solutions. I'm actually pushing for things that are actually making people's lives better rather than the Conservatives who are on the sidelines making a little bit of noise but not getting anything done. What can they show being 100 plus seats in the House of Commons that has made someone's life better in this country? We're 25 MPs and we've sent 12 million people in this country nearly $500, 2 million people help for their rent, and 500,000 kids can get their teeth looked after. That's because of us. And in Alberta, we've got uh, specific numbers. You know, 14, uh, 140,000 people are getting the rental benefit of $500. 995,000 people get the GST rebate of up to $467. And 82,000 kids are getting that dental benefit. What can the Conservatives say to that?
0: That's the power yeah. of what we've been able to achieve. I think you've leveraged your power very well in terms of getting some NDP policy that, you know, really wouldn't get passed any of the way put through the Liberal government by offering support of their government. I'm just wondering, you know, when you're critical of the things that they, is there anything? Is there something, you know, if it comes back and says, you know what, they were wrong to use the Emergency uh, inquiry, or emergency Act and it was an overreach and it was a violation of, of Canadian, uh, would, would, would that be enough? Is there anything they could do that would make you say, you know what, we're gonna, we're going to pull our support for the Liberal government? Oh, we always have the ability to pull our support. I know you have the ability, but would you ever? Yeah, we would pull our support. Basically,
2: our fundamental question for us is failing to deliver help to Canadians. If at some point it comes clear to us that we can no longer get help to Canadians, we can't continue to deliver on the things that will make Canadians' lives better, and we can't continue to be a constructive force for good for Canadians, then we're going to stop, uh, we're going to withdraw our support, and we'll will trigger an election. So triggering an election is a serious decision, and it's not something I take lightly. And so I'll trigger an election when it is in the interest of Canadians, when we're unable to be able to continue to get things done. But right now we're showing real concrete results. Like these are things that we did within less than a year. These These are millions of people across the country that are getting help. Hundreds of thousands of Albertans are getting real help because of us, and we're going to continue to use our power to get that help, unlike the Conservatives, uh, or the Liberals who would have sat back and done nothing, we forced real change to happen to get people real help.
0: Um, last one, and then I'll let you go. Uh, we yeah. talked about the Singh Trudeau Alliance. Uh, as you know, and I'm sure you know, um, in Alberta, uh, the UCP, we're on a campaign. We've got an election six months out, and it's called the Notley Singh Trudeau Alliance. Rachel Notley has been lumped in with you and Justin Trudeau as sort of this alliance uh, working against Alberta. You come out with statements about the Sovereignty Act in Alberta. I'm just wondering, what, where do you fit into this next six months, this campaign? Um, do you Does the Alberta NDP want distance from you and Trudeau, or are you going to be a prominent feature here in the province? Where can you be beneficial, going away or jumping in? (laughs) Well, I can say that my goal is to make life better for people, and I'm
2: happy um, to do whatever I can to make people's lives better. That's what I'm focused on. I've been very critical, and I will continue to be critical of Trudeau. He's done a lot of things wrong, and we're using our power to actually change that. Uh, He didn't do anything to help people with the cost of living going up. The, The Conservatives raised that concern got nothing done. We actually sent money to people, put money in people's pockets. So we're actually getting stuff done instead of just making noise. Our goal is to actually get people real results and real help. Uh, We'll continue to be critical of the government and actually propose solutions. And critical of the Alberta
0: government too. I mean, are they also in your, I mean, obviously they were yesterday, but will you hear more chirping about what's going on with the Alberta UCP?
2: Well, if they continue to uh, hurt Albertans, if they continue to suggest things like people need to fundraise for their own health care and their own operations, yeah, we're going to be critical of things like that because that hurts people. And ultimately, my goal is to make sure people are better off, people are getting the help and respect that they need, and that's going to be my goal. Wherever that happens, whether it's Doug Ford that uh, fought with workers and disrespected um, health care and education workers and workers fought back, or whether it's Daniel Smith, That chooses to attack health care and our publicly uh, delivered system that's supposed to be there for everybody. Uh, I'm I'm open to continue to raise concerns that benefit people in every province, in every territory, in every part of our country.
0: Mr. uh, Singh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate being here. Of course, thanks so much. That is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP. As you know, China is seeing civil unrest unlike Anything that country has witnessed in decades, millions and millions of Chinese citizens seem to have reached their limit with, um, well, I mean, life altering restrictions, total lockdowns that have gone on for months and months as the Chinese government continues on its very severe zero COVID strategy. Three years after things all went sideways and as most of the world has now moved into a new phase with little to no restrictions at all. Now, there are some big questions being asked about where this might all lead. And in a country as influential as China, where it goes and the fallout from that will affect all of us, it already is. Apple telling people, hey, if you're waiting for a new phone, be patient, because we're having major issues at our Chinese production facilities. And they're not alone. This will have a trickle-down effect. But first of all, we're going to chat with Gordon Holden, uh, for my money, the go-to guy when it comes to all issues out of China. He's the Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, and Adjunct Professor of the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate you being here, sir. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so just help us put this into perspective. What we're seeing play out in China, how unprecedented is it to have protests like this in that country?
3: Well, it's not quite without precedent, but it's almost its without recent precedent. Yeah. You have to go all the way back to 1989 to Tiananmen to see crowds on a national basis in those numbers. And then we'll go into the history in 1919. But this is extraordinary. And I think that the geographic spread, the fact that some of these protests united workers, students, general public, uh, a variety of causes, the, the, the
0: spark being COVID restrictions. But then we began to see other issues emerge. Um, when we take a look at why, why are these kinds of protests uh, very uncommon in China? They Taking part or starting something like this comes with great risk, doesn't it?
3: It does come with great risk. You do see very small-scale limited protests in China fairly frequently. Workers at a factory will march off and complain. The local party leaders yeah. will come to some sort of... This is different. and But there are, and because of that, the risks are greater. Uh, the... The um, surveillance state makes it not that hard for them, not just by filming, but by identifying facial features, or by tracking people's apps, by stopping people on the street and looking at their phones. Uh, there is a consequence. We don't know exactly who they are now, but for many it will mean arrest. for others it will mean um, interrogation, um, and for many it may mean because they have a social credit system, they may find it hard to travel to fly and it may close off certain jobs or professions or
0: training for them. So when you go do this, uh, the, the cost is potentially very high indeed. Now, the protesters taking to the streets primarily because of COVID restrictions. That's sort of what started it. But there's the added element that I think is even more uncommon, calling on the end of Xi Jinping as part of government here, calling for him to resign and step down. Um, that really does elevate it to another level, doesn't it? It does. Now, we didn't
3: see that at every protest. I think some people were more cautious. Some people may have been motivated almost exclusively by the COVID shutdowns. But the fact, when you had those numbers gathering, that you began to see uh, some individuals go off message, that is off just COVID and starting to criticize the president, to criticize the party and ask for, for freedom, press freedom, holding up blank pieces of paper showing mm-hmm. that they're
0: censored. Uh, these sorts of things are what makes the party very nervous indeed. Um, Where does this go in in your mind? Uh, I know the government has announced some changes to restrictions. Uh, I mean, you could even say capitulating in some ways. Does that surprise you?
3: Well, yes and no. Uh, The party stayed in power for a very long time, partly because it has an ear to the ground, and when they must, they will adjust, Um, not always happily, uh, because this policy has been personally, that is a zero-COVID policy, personally endorsed and led by Xi Jinping. Uh, but, um, and for that reason, it's particularly challenging for the party because he's associated with it. In the past, you had presidents sometimes who would have a, uh, a fairly prominent prime minister or a minister that could fire that person. She takes claim, uh, takes credit for everything. And he gets mm. that credit when things go well, and he gets a stick when it goes badly.
0: I think a lot of people fear that this will end violently, uh, as we've seen before. And there's uh, the crackdown is inevitable, and it will happen. Uh, is that your anticipation to? Eventually. Uh, they the think that the state
3: right now has enough means at its disposal to contain these protests. Uh, keep in mind that the um, many of these people have already been arrested or detained or warned. Uh, they'll be scrubbing the internet and looking for others who are passing on these messages. What the party really fears, in my view, is not just a few spontaneous demonstrations. Well, they don't like that, but any sign of organization or ringleaders. So that I think that they have that still in hand. and Quite frankly, from just knocking a few protesters around and arresting them, they've got a lot of escalation uh, options. They have water cannon, they have tear gas, and then they have lethal force. So I think for the time being, they have it in hand, and they're going to try and buy some time by loosening restrictions. In the longer run, uh, and who knows how long that will be, I'm not great at predicting the future, um, these challenges may reemerge. But we have learned from these that below the surface, it looks very calm. There is a lot of unhappiness, not yeah. just with the COVID policies, but with
0: uh, the party. And that you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes it may not be this round of protest that leads to something, but it sparks something, right? It ignites a spirit of rebellion where they see that, hey, you know what? Actually, if we do rise up, we can affect change. So could this just be the start of, of more, do you think? I think that
3: given that the Chinese people would have to be living in a cave, I think, if they live in a Chinese city, not to be aware of these protests. Even though they're there's scrubbed from the media, I think that this makes it more feasible or more likely that other circumstances, you we know, don't know which ones, might generate some protests. And it's interesting as well that young people who've never known other than than maybe one or two Chinese presidents, they were often in the lead in these demonstrations. However, you could also have a situation which I think is just as likely, maybe more likely. And at some point, the higher ups in the party get tired of Xi Jinping, and you have some sort of a coup or, uh, at the top. That's how the Soviet Union ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't through mass, mass mobilization. But this will make them nervous, and it will, they won't sleep as soundly in Zhongnanhai high after these events.
0: What about what this means to the rest of the world? I mean, China is so massive and influential and you know, economically tied to, you know, Canada, for example. And we already know Apple has had some issues and said, hey, your iPhone that you were hoping for for Christmas may not happen because of what we're dealing with. I mean, it will have ripple effects for all of us, including those of us here in Canada, won't it? Absolutely. And, of course, the COVID policies there,
3: uh, that is in China, were part of the problem, not the whole problem with our supply chain issues. And, and those will persist. Uh, if they, if China were to eliminate all its COVID restrictions, they almost certainly would have uh, outbreaks with very large numbers of folks infected. I mean, more of a threat to the elderly than to the young. Um, but either way, you know, they loosen up quickly and there's more spread of the disease or they keep the same very rigid policies in place. Uh, we will and are affected. Absolutely.
0: Um, Gordon, as always, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate it. It's very kind. Thank you. Thank you. That's Gordon Holden, who uh, is the director emeritus of the China Institute, professor of political science, and an adjunct professor at the School uh, Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. And like I said, he, he's, he's the go-to. He's the guy. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.